the Data Driven Podcast, an I Hear Everything production. In this podcast, we explore how to transform your company and career through data-driven decision-making. Want to become a data storytelling aficionado? Then sit back, relax, and get ready to unlock the true potential of your data. Here's the host of the Data Driven Podcast, Dominic Bohan. So yesterday, Dominic and I talked about crafting use cases for AI and analytics. And today, we're going to continue our conversation and discuss ethics and social impacts of AI-driven data and analytics. So here's my conversation with Dominic Gligot, the CEO and CTO at Cyrillytics. Dom, thanks for joining us again. And can you tell us some of the biggest concerns on your mind right now about the ethical implications of artificial intelligence and particularly how it's going to affect the data and analytics community and industry. Yeah, so I'd like to start with, there's at least two areas um, where I would be looking at, particularly regenerative AI. One is what they call alignment, the alignment problem. And in a nutshell, alignment is all about whether the model reflects the intentions of the modeler. And this is an issue for generative AI because historically, when we've had more traditional AI, if you will, the outcomes are fairly contained. If you have pictures of cats and dogs, it's either going to be a cat or a dog, right? <laughs> Prediction will be a cat or a dog. But these generative AI models basically have what properties known as autoregressive properties. So every time you feed it a new question or a new prompt, it adds that to its, to its learning and it can start reacting or interacting with you in ways that may have not been originally envisaged by the creators. And that means many things. One is the way, let's say, a chat GPT would process or give you a result. A lot of people assume it's like a search engine or a database where, okay, tell me about Dominic Bohan. It doesn't necessarily grab a Dominic Bohan record from the database or query it online. What it does is it assembles a sentence about Dominic Bohan in a way that it thinks Dominic Bohan sentences would look like based on what it learned. So these are probabilistically built information. And that means it may look statistically true, but it could be completely false. I remember asking it about myself and it started getting new awards that I've never heard of. It's always, that, it's always a laugh when you ask it for something very specific. So alignment is a problem because that's probably on the benign side when you get fictional biographies of people, but what if it starts getting into something political or what if it starts getting into something like disinformation, then that's an issue. So that's what. The second is in a way related thing called emergent properties. What does that mean? Emergent properties are, again, these are outcomes that the, you, the creators of these models never envisaged. And they're also partly because of that, the way it interacts with you, the probabilistic nature of the output. But it also includes how people interact with the models. For example, there was a, a recent article of a man. I don't think he was using ChatGPT, this another language model, but he got so depressed by the interaction that he actually committed suicide. And that's an area where historically we haven't really been doing very well in terms of technology. To give you an example, social media, social media platforms like Facebook and Twitter, they all run off a very similar algorithm everything that can increase engagement. 
So it's all about matching preferences. It's all about doing recommendations. And the problem with these recommendations are you're basically being fed information that it thinks you like to be fed with anyway. And that's while that's very good for marketing, it really gives you a way of targeting people and increasing conversion perhaps. It's not very good for democracy. So you get fed information that suits your preference and you don't get what would otherwise have been a variety of views. And that's why the term echo chamber is now quite common. You only hear what you want to hear and you you only see what you want to see. And on its most extreme version, I don't know if you're familiar with what happened in Myanmar. The Myanmar military used Facebook's targeting to spread hate speech about the Rohingya tribe, which is an ethnic minority. And this escaped detection for years. Number one, because of the targeting process. So only people they targeted would see it. And second, it wasn't even done in English. It was done in their native tongue. And again, here's where problems with natural language processing were a hindrance because no matter what kind of content filters you would put in English, it wouldn't have spotted Burmese. So that's an early version of AI, the way we understand it. It's just an engagement mechanism. In this case, we're almost defining the algorithms that power the Facebook newsfeed suggestions as a simple AI. Right. And then now you have more complex AI, which has been trained on much more information. And the way people use it go far beyond what social media was. You can't predict how people are going to use this. And And those are the two issues, alignment and emergent properties. So uh, on the alignment front, some of this stuff is pretty scary. I did not know about that story in Myanmar. Now, given your experience running a firm that aims to use data for governments, researchers, NGOs, basically for positive change and good in the world, is it fair to say that if you wanted to use things in a not so good way, you would probably have a better understanding than most of how it could be misused. And perhaps you could give us some examples of how an unscrupulous person that has access to a lot of data, that has access to powerful institutions, could misuse these models. Yeah, there's a lot. First, on the intent, nothing stops anyone from tweaking a language model to come up with some nefarious information. In fact, there's an earlier version of, of this. I don't know if you've heard of Brat GPT with a B. <laughs> so Brat, not. Oh, you should check it out. Brat GPT is pretty much chat GPT, but it's trained to be a jerk. Basically, it's trained to answer you in a very condescending manner. Of course, it's probably all for fun and satire, but I found myself getting annoyed and triggered by this chatbot after a few interactions. And that's probably the more benign side. What I'm actually worried about is this thing called when you embody an AI, you connect it to a process or a structure or a mechanism that allows it to interact, not just with the outside world, but with itself, like something like AutoGPT. Can you imagine the classic scenario that I heard Elon Musk say, what if you have a chatbot or an AI that's trained to maximize profit and it has access to both social media and financial markets? It can buy and sell stuff and can spread stuff. One of the easiest ways would be to load up on military stocks and then use social media to spread hate and start a war, and then it would make a killing. These are like, I would say, emergent scenarios that I'm sure the creators never thought of. But if you connect an AI to enough kind of nodes in a network, it it can start affecting things. And then the further scary part, sorry to sound so doom and gloom, is right now the chatbots are pretty static. They just reply to you if you prompt it. 
it doesn't take a lot learning the kind of the prompt engineering course. It doesn't take a lot to actually ask it to prompt itself given certain conditions and then ask it to edit itself or improve itself. It's tricky from a programming standpoint, but it doesn't seem impossible. And then now you have a fully autonomous agent that's able to improve itself in ways that people probably never thought about. That's always the kind of the end game scenario. And then when you embody something into kind of like a physical object, like what if your refrigerator had an AI and it started freezing food at random or seemingly at random or tried to concoct ways of poisoning you and all that stuff. Indeed, it all sounds very science fiction, but these are fair game for any self-automated computing process. That's always the danger if we don't put guardrails into these things. We hear a lot about guardrails and... It's my suspicion that many of them don't work or are easy to circumvent. But that said, that doesn't mean we should give up. That just means that it's a tremendous challenge to get right. So what are some of the guardrails that can actually work, that are actually realistic and feasible to implement to make these systems safer and prevent some of these worse outcomes or worst case scenarios that you've highlighted? One of the first things that are quite it's not, they're not counterintuitive. They're actually logical, but speaking as a professional that handles AI and, and machine learning, it's actually something that I'm loath to do. And that's licensing and permits. So given any dangerous machine, like again, driving a car is an excellent example. You could kill someone driving a car. You could hit someone, you could hurt yourself. So cars are highly regulated. You need a license to operate one. You need to register it. So it's not too far-fetched to imagine that at some level, AI may fall into the same bucket. Before you deploy AI systems, you have to be licensed, there have to be permits. I think the tricky part with that process, though, is if you're not careful, you could start stifling development. You can start stifling innovation. And another inspiration is in the medical field. I'm sure people don't, don't bat an eyelash with the idea that you have people like doctors who can prescribe medicines but you can't get your hands on medicines until you talk to a second type of person, which is a pharmacist that dispenses the medicine in the drugstore. Yeah. So there's a reason why these two professions are separated from each other. And it's to avoid abuse because nothing stops doctors from prescribing themselves all sorts of interesting stuff. Or and you, So you need pharmacists to be the guardrails there. So that could be another potential outcome at some point where... The people developing the models should be separate from the people deploying the models. Right now, everyone like does both and without any consequence. And then maybe from a kind of a broader standpoint, we have rules like, okay, you can only use certain devices in a certain way. Like you can't be driving cars into buildings, etc. So there might come a point where there are actual rules. I think the best analogy would be building permits. You can't be just building any skyscraper in the middle of nowhere without zoning, without adequate access to facilities, et cetera. And these are all put into building codes. So it's not, again, far-fetched to imagine that, yeah, you can develop any AI you want in your local host, but before you put it into some system or production, whatever process, you need to get certain permits. Again, it sounds very onerous. It sounds like a hassle. I would really hate to do it. But if the risks are large enough, as, was, uh, as it's being intimated now by a lot of people, we could be headed in that direction. Interesting. A lot of the examples you've given, right? Uh, building permits, driving, yeah, pharmacies, and the, the prescription of, sorry, the prescription of drugs, they're heavily controlled in physical reality, right? It's very difficult for me 
sitting here in Thailand to circumvent the rules of this country, it's hugely onerous to go fly to Singapore to get access to a drug. Even more so with building codes. If I don't like the building codes here in Bangkok, that's probably it if I want to build a building in Bangkok. My fear is that people will jurisdiction shop. So whichever country has the loosest laws and the least regulation, and surely a few of them will have these loose regulations, wouldn't it be fairly easy for all of the AI startups and all of the AI money to go to those jurisdictions? And wouldn't it even create a perverse incentive for jurisdictions to almost be like tax havens where they compete to have the loosest regulatory environment? Yeah, what you said already happens, let's say in banks. There is a term in banking called regulatory arbitrage. So you tend to move capital to areas, like I worked in banks before. If you're a global bank like ANZ or HSBC, Citibank, you tend to move capital into areas where it gets taxed the least or you could grow something with the least amount of potential loss. But yeah, it it could happen. And that's why my kind of my mental impression or my thought image of the regulatory landscape in the world now, it's like a Mexican standoff. No one wants to be the first to regulate because they know they could lose out in the innovation race. And that's why there's a lot of clamor for something like supranational, something beyond countries, like the, like a Geneva Convention structure that regulates weapons of mass destruction, or, but for AI. Again, the reason why that thing appeared was because we had a global catastrophe and a world war and that's why these structures started to emerge. So a lot of people are also saying it may actually involve another global catastrophe before people start agreeing as a world to, to impose something, to regulate this stuff. Again, we're just looking at history. I don't know if it'll play out that way. Okay. On that terrifying note, we might pause on AI safety and analytics. A slightly gloomy thought there that it might take a World War level catastrophe to get national governments to work together on this. But given the state of geopolitics right now and the great power competition between superpowers, I have to agree with you, Doc, that I don't hold much hope in a high level of honest, good faith, voluntary collaboration. Yeah, it works both ways. Like, I think we don't give countries enough credit either. If you remember a couple of years ago, there was a scientist in China who successfully cloned a human being. Remember that? Yep. I don't know whatever happened to that, but last I heard, that guy is actually in jail. So that's China stepping up and saying you can't be doing that without proper safeguards. And this is despite all of the geopolitical tensions between China and the rest of the world. You could have argued completely differently. Hey, the first country that cracks cloning will be a massive game changer globally, right? You could be growing people the way they, they do in the Matrix or something like that. But they decided to put a stop on it. So even if you have countries that are maybe of a political, different political ideology or maybe political persuasion. It doesn't necessarily mean that they will be 100% opportunistic about this. I think the problem is there's really no way to ensure that we'll all be happily regulating each other, especially when tensions get escalated, like we've had conflicts in the Ukraine, for example, and Russia. I don't know. I mean, and of course, you have the China and Taiwan thing. And speaking as someone who lives in Manila, It's just a pebble's throw away from bringing us into that conflict. And even back home here, the big problem is one of the uh, industries that the Philippines relies on a lot, which is the call center industry. 
is seemingly at the razor's edge when it comes to AI disruption. So, yeah, I can't help but worry about that sector. That is a really interesting point. I think we can talk about that now. And I think to the podcast team, that would should probably be spliced into the next episode. So that's something that I've thought about a lot myself, Doc, is the business process outsourcing industry. We know it's a huge industry, especially in the Philippines. Philippines is extremely competitive at call center, a lot of back office work, a lot of work that can be standardized and routinized and therefore is seemingly some of the highest value targets for automation. So tell us where you see that going in the near future over the next few years. How do you think AI is going to disrupt that industry? I think we can get inspiration from how the call center industry actually got formed. A big rationale for it is really cost arbitrage. These departments and functions used to sit onshore in the US and Europe, and it made more sense because of salary differences and technology to put that in an offshore location. And I think that's still where the argument will be. Objectively speaking, I would say easily 80 to 90% of an agent's tasks can be automated. It's always been the case for a long time, but the cost of automating everything was still at the stalemate versus just the cost of offshoring it. That's what's kept it at parity right now. So the big move will probably come from the onshoring country when they realize that, hey, look, we could be paying 10% of what we're paying the Philippines. Let's switch. And that's where the whole thing will start falling down. It probably won't get initiated at the Philippines level. Of course, some other BPOs I've heard have started proactively automating already. And how what the rationale is, we're probably not going to cut staff, but what we're going to try to do is increase productivity with the minimal amount of job loss. So rather than having having to double our headcount, maybe we can just grow it by 10%, but then achieve the doubling of the productivity. Again, these are all, I would say, ideal scenarios, how it probably will play out later on to be something even more dramatic and drastic. But again, just as easily as the call center industry appeared, eventually it could just start disappearing. But the trigger will probably come from the offshoring entity abroad. Makes sense. Now, what I was really surprised to hear you say is that it was really just cost that's the barrier to these tasks being automated already. To my understanding of where these models are at, especially large language models and and voice generation and interpretation models, I wouldn't have thought that even until very recently it'd be feasible to automate 90% of the work of a call center voice agent. Yeah, I think a lot of it is, if we go back to one of the first things we discussed in the last episode, it's a lot of process re-engineering. And many companies who send operations abroad or to the Philippines, they usually don't have very nice processes to begin with. So part of the offshoring exercise is cleaning that up, making it systematic so a call center can work it out. Now, unfortunately, it doesn't go back to the way it was now that you have a call center, now that it's all nice and clean and process engineered. It doesn't take a lot to just switch that into kind of a, like an automated agent. So one thing that maybe another potential hindrance at the moment up until recently is I don't think conversing with a chatbot before ChatGPT was actually a pleasant experience. If you read up on some of the customer feedback, people hate talking to chatbots. They'd rather, or maybe culturally, they prefer a human being to do it. 
Now, the problem is in the large language model era, you may not even really know <laughs> that it's actually uh, a chatbot dealing with it. And that's one of the, I think, the unique things about how these new models have emerged. It's not necessarily about achieving, just achieving high accuracy. It's about high, achieving the highest resemblance to a human interaction. There's that process called RLHF, reinforcement learning through human mm -hmm. feedback. And all that is really, in a nutshell, is can we train a model to sound like a human? Not necessarily be accurate, but as long as it sounds like a human, I can interact with it the way a human can and I'm good. And I think that's the disruptor. If people don't realize they're already talking to a robot and only learn about it later, that the switch could have already happened underneath their noses. Absolutely. And then the rise of chat in general, as opposed to voice. I'm one of those people that just sighs in despair if there's not a chat option and I have yep. to actually call a contact center to get something done. And I think the, the younger generations increasingly prefer these chatbots. So it's, it's making it even easier to do this automation. Yeah. And then the nature of commerce itself. I think one of the, I guess it, it may have been helped a lot by the pandemic, which forced everyone to go online. If this transition happened without the pandemic, there might have been a higher barrier to switch because you're used to walking into a branch, you're used to going into a store. But then COVID did that. You did away with that for us. Everyone's now stuck at home, used to interacting with websites and mobile phone apps. And then this thing comes. It just made the switch much easier. So I feel that the last nail hanging is really just contracts and cost. Once those contracts expire and they go through re-evaluation, it, it just takes someone to make a credible argument that, hey, look, we're gonna, you're going to realize three times or five times the productivity, half the cost. For all, a large language model could have been used to make that pitch. <laughs> and that, that's it. I, I don't know if you've heard of, I mean, we talk about tools. There's this really cool tool called dimeadozen.ai. You should check it out. And all it does is it asks you three questions. What's your business? Who are you targeting? And what do you think your unique proposition is? And you know what it'll do? It'll give you a full-blown business analysis proposal that you can just send to any investor. And if you could pay, I think it's an extra $39. It can even prescribe your tech stack. It can even prescribe your marketing strategy. Of Maybe, obviously, a lot of it could have been just generic stuff you picked online, but it just cuts through a lot of the menial labor. You translate that process into something that a medical transcription agent would do or something that a call center agent would do. All that admit, if you remove all of that, the productivity saves could be tremendous. And a lot of that could have been done by the offshoring entity. So a lot of their admin could have been fixed. So there's less need to send that over to a place like the Philippines. So what you're just going to be left with would be physical labor intensive tasks, but then you have the robotic side of AI that's probably going to take care of that eventually. But the white collar stuff, the desk stuff, easy, very easy. Yeah, I've been hearing a lot of comments like that, even from Sam Altman, the founder of OpenAI, saying your plumber or your housekeeper will be much more difficult to automate than a lot of what was previously considered low-skilled, but even mid-skilled and mid-level corporate desk type work. Yeah, absolutely. And remember one of the early, I would say automated appliances people heard about would be the robot vacuum cleaners, the Roombas. And what I've heard of, I don't know if you've ever had one, but what I've heard is people own a Roomba. They, have, they end up 
reconfiguring their house so that the Roomba has an easier time cleaning it. So I took that as a small inspiration that eventually when commercial robotics will be available, even the way we organize our households, even the, the way we organize our things, we will actually end up adjusting if only to allow robots to do it easier. And that's probably going to happen in office work as well. You're going to be meeting a lot of the automation halfway. If it's a crap process now, but you know that you could save tons of money by just automating part of it, you will actually end up fixing that process a bit to make it easier to automate. I believe it. <laughs> okay, that wraps up this episode of the Data Driven Podcast. Thanks to Dominic Lagot, CEO and CTO at Serolytics for joining us. In part three of this interview, which we'll publish tomorrow, Dominic and I are going to discuss finding a career in AI and data and analytics. Just one link in our show notes that I want to tell you about. If you didn't have a chance to take notes while listening to this podcast, head over to datadrivenpod.com, where we've got summaries of all our episodes and contact information for all our guests. And if you want to share your most compelling data narratives and use cases of data and analytics, you can apply to be a guest speaker on the Data Driven Podcast. Of course, you can always reach us on social media. Our handle on LinkedIn, Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram is StoryIQ, or you can contact me directly on Twitter. My handle is Dominic Bohan. If you haven't subscribed yet and want a steady stream of data-driven brilliance in your podcast feed, we're publishing multiple episodes each week. Hit that subscribe button on your podcast app, and we'll be back in your feed tomorrow. Okay, that's all for today. But remember, when it comes to data storytelling, less is more.